turn to the book of 1 Peter again as we begin our second chapter together. Our text this morning will be chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Hear now the word of the Lord. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless us by this your word. That your word would come down upon us, Lord, as a fire. To fire our hearts and our souls with a yearning to bring the message to the lost. With love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And with love for each other. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a phenomena occurring in suburbs across the nation. It doesn't matter whether, like me, you're from snowy Buffalo, or whether, like Ariel, you're from Mexico, or you grew up here in Houston. Life in many communities is very different than it was a generation or two generations ago. One of the things that is a common complaint or concern is that we lack a sense of community. That people aren't connected. That you can live, as I did for three years in a suburb of Jackson, and not know my neighbors two and three doors down. We just aren't as connected as we were in our grandparents' generation. That's also true in the church, isn't it? I imagine if we took a poll in this church, if we took a poll in every church in Katy, if we took a poll in every church in Houston, up near the top of the list of needs and areas of growth in the church would be a better sense of community. And one of the things that this is typified by as we go out in our suburbs and our neighborhoods, is by small things that have a very big impact. If you look at homes that were built in neighborhoods that are 50, 60, 70 years old, there's something very different about them than today's developments. Houses have porches, not back decks. 50 or 60 years ago, people might have walked to work or shopped in the neighborhood. Now they walk into their garage open the garage door, drive out, go into a parking garage, get out of their car, go to their office, and repeat the process on the way home. They can spend an entire day. We can spend an entire day without seeing each other. It's a very small thing, isn't it, that we have a deck instead of a porch, or that we have cars instead of walking or subways or buses. But it has a big impact on the way in which our community is shaped. Well, that's also true in a spiritual realm in the church, There are things that we think really aren't that big of a deal. They're not that large of items. And yet they have a very significant impact on our community as God's people in the church. Peter recognizes this. And so at the beginning of this chapter, he begins to describe to his flock 
which by God's grace and providence includes us now, as we look at this word that Peter has written, inspired by the Spirit. And he describes for them, in the midst of all of their difficulties and struggles, what's really important. And one of the things that's really important is that they be together. And so Peter begins to describe for them the necessity of living as a community, the necessity of community in their life. And community doesn't come from a vacuum. It doesn't just spring up. So because of that, Peter describes the necessity of the Word of God in building that community. The necessity of community in our life and the necessity of the Word of God in order to shape us and build us up. And we can't really talk about the Word and how it is necessary unless we look at the one who has written the Word. And so Peter then moves on to describe how God is necessary to us. So this morning I'd like us to see these three things. The necessity of community, the necessity of the Word, and the necessity of God. Peter begins here by describing, in a sense, the way this community begins and is shaped. He does it in an interesting way that I hope that you are catching on by now. And that is the very first word in chapter 2 is the little word, so. Some translations have it as therefore. And it's basically the same word, it's the same concept. And when we come to a therefore in the scripture, the first thing that we are to do is to look back and to see what the therefore is there for. And you'll recall the last two weeks we've looked at how we are to experience brotherly love for one another. How we are to live in a, in a life and a community that is built upon the gospel and the word of God. And how this is a result of our salvation. And what Peter basically says is you are living together in a new community where you have new life. It's explicitly what he says here in verse 23 of chapter 1, the previous chapter. He says, since you have been born again, on and on. So, therefore, do this. He's saying, we live in a community, the defining mark of which is that we are born again. Our community is a place where new life is found. And Peter is addressing these commands to Christians. And what does he say? He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now, there's two things that we get from this, knowing that we're in a community of new life. And that is, first, that it is Christians who are called to do these things, to put away malice, slander, etc. It means if you are not a Christian, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't come to saving faith, that you must begin there. You don't begin putting away sins. You begin with Jesus. But there's another thing, too, and that is that we should not be surprised if in the church we find malice, slander, envy, and hypocrisy. Because we are the redeemed people of God, not the perfect people of God. And so when you face difficulties with someone else in the church, don't be surprised, don't be despairing. It's a part of God's plan. When you are envious, when you are malicious, that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. 
It means God needs to work on your life, and you need to be sanctified. This is something that occurs in the church. You see, what happens is we come to faith in Jesus Christ, and we can't stay there. We must be in a community. And that's why these commands to leave off community sins. You see, so often we want to start and end with being born again, don't we? We expect everything to just happen there and to be fixed. Well, we've had a recent birth in our congregation. The Arrowwoods have a new baby girl. And I'm sure Renee knows, and I'm sure every mother here knows, that the birth is not the end of taking care of your children, is it? It's the beginning. It goes on from there. And it gets harder, doesn't it, when they don't sleep through the night. And then when they start sleeping through the night, but they start actively disobeying. And you have to do everything for them. And then they can do their own things, and they get into the high school years, and you have a whole different set of issues. And then finally, they're responsible enough to move away and have their own home, and there's a whole other set of issues. And you get to the point where you're a man like me, I'm almost 40, and I still occasionally call my father for help and advice. You never quit being a parent, do you? That's what it's like in the Christian life. God doesn't stop with us when he begets us again. That's just the start. That's the place to begin and so what Peter calls us to then is he tells us this is not only a community that where new life is, but new life leads to something. And that leads to putting off sin. And so Peter says, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy. He says, put off your old self. There's a biblical metaphor here that Paul uses as well as Peter over and over again. It's putting off and putting on. We put off sin. We put on holiness. We put off disobedience. We put on obedience. And the image is something that would become very obvious to anyone. The same word is used in Acts 7. You remember the case where they stoned Stephen and they took off their cloaks and handed them to Saul? It's the same word. They put off their cloaks so that they could do what? Have more freedom of motion live how they thought they should. Well, we don't want to emulate their disobedience, but we want to do the same sort of thing. We want to put off sin. So we should live as God says we should. We are to lay aside these sins. Now, before we look at specifically what these sins are, we need to be reminded of one thing. And that is that this is what we call an imperative. It's a command from Peter. And it's a command to each of us to put off our own sins. It's a command to put off our own sins. I repeat that intentionally. You see, it's very easy to put off someone else's sins, isn't it? To point out someone else's difficulties and how they need to fix themselves. Or it's very easy for ourselves to put off a sin that besets someone else. For example... I have no difficulty at all putting off the sin of gambling. It doesn't affect me at all. I don't even have any interest in these no-money, pick'em, college basketball tournament polls. It just doesn't float my boat. I don't have any difficulty putting that sin off. For others, that might be a real struggle. 
I have my own sins that I struggle with, and so do you. And Peter calls us to put off our own sins, to address this personally. And he also says it, that we are to put off our sins completely. Do you notice how he says this? Put away all malice and all deceit and all slander. It's almost like he's stuttering. Three times he says all in one short sentence. He could have easily written this all and then a list of sins. But no, he wants us to get the point that we are to put off sin completely. You are called, Christian, not to fight against sin. You're not. You're not called to fight against sin. You're called to kill it. This is not a struggle that we ebb and flow with. We are called to engage it as if sin itself were going to take our lives from us, take our children from us, take everything we have from us. The old Puritan John Owen put it this way, it's pithy and well to remember. He said, we must always be killing sin, or sin will be killing us. It's a serious struggle. What sort of sins are we to put off that Peter says? It's very interesting what he says. He says we're to put off malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. What kind of sins are these? The first thing that we might notice is these aren't what we call gross sins. They're not big sins, are they? It's not like the list that Paul has in Romans 1. Murder, haters of God, right? They're a different kind of sin. They are community-destroying sins. You see, these kinds of sins don't seem gross, big, and obvious, but they're dangerous and deadly. These are the kind of sins that destroy love, the kind of love that Peter had just exhorted us to, brotherly love without hypocrisy. He says, you must, if you want to love each other, you have to put off these sins. You see, oftentimes we pit love and spiritual discipline against each other. We want to show love, but we don't want to be bound up in thinking about sin and being depressed. And the point is, Peter says, if we want to love each other in the best fashion, we have to put off sin. We have to get it out of our lives. You see, Peter's focus here is on relationships in the church. You see, these kinds of sins tear at the fabric of relationships. These are the kinds of sins that Satan loves to see in families, in churches, in sessions. This is the kind of sin that destroys love. You see, these sins don't seem to be obvious to us. We can look and say, well, you know, we're not murderers. I haven't gone out and killed anybody lately. I'm not a hater of God. But you see, when we think about malice, for example, what is malice? Malice is ill will. It is the desire to inflict harm. We might even say, well, we're not like that. We don't go around with clubs hitting people. I don't kick people in the shins. I don't say mean things to people to their face. But you see, that's not the kind of sin. That's the most obvious example. See, what Peter's getting at is the kind of sin that Simon the sorcerer is known for. You remember Simon the sorcerer? 
that Peter denounced? You see, what Simon's sin was, was that he wanted to get an advantage from God to use to manipulate other people. And you know what Peter calls that sin? Malice. Have you ever been tempted or sinned in that way? Used an advantage that you have to the disadvantage of someone else. Have you ever used your Bible knowledge to make someone else feel this big? Or have you ever used the success that you've had in parenting your children to show you're just a little bit better of a parent than someone else? Maybe not consciously, maybe not obviously, but in your heart. You see, that's the kind of sin that needs to get rooted out. This kind of sin, Paul says in Ephesians 4, is the kind of sin that prevents forgiveness. It gets in the way. It's a logjam to forgiveness. We have to blow that logjam apart so that forgiveness flows in the church and so that we can have true love for one another. Another sin that Peter describes is deceit or hypocrisy. This isn't just saying things that are false. It's taking advantage of the things that we do that are false. This sin is best described by the illustration of the Pharisees. Do you remember when they came to Jesus and they said, Rabbi, we have just an interesting question for you. Um, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And you see, the scripture calls that a hypocritical, deceitful test. They didn't ask because they wanted the answer. They asked because they were sure they had devised a way to hurt Jesus. No matter which way he answered, he was going to lose. They had the perfect trick. That's the kind of sin that this is. It's the kind of sin in which we make ourselves look just a little bit better than we are in front of others when we tell a story or when we describe something. Peter was very familiar with this sin. It's the sin that Paul describes in Galatians 2.13 that Peter was committing. He was trying to make himself look just a little bit better than the Galatians. You see? Peter learned his lesson. He's putting off that sin. Envy is another sin. Envy is basically an assault on God's providence. God, I don't like what you've given me. I want something better. I want that. Kids, this is a perfect one for you to think about. Every time you've said, I, Mom, Dad, I need that game. Tommy's got it. It's the best. I can't live unless I get that vacation to Disney World. Right? That's envy. What does that sin do? It causes difficulties in friendships. It causes frictions in families. Adults can do that too. Churches can do that too. Oh, it's fine what we're building, but it would be much better if we just had another five or 6,000 square feet like them. We'd be so much better. You see, this is a sin that causes friction in relationships and love. Slander, speaking evil of one another. You see, all these sins are present and accounted for in the church. And what we are called to do, Peter says, is not to pretend they're not there, that we happen to be the perfect church. No, we are called to recognize these sins and to take them to the cross and to see that they are nailed there. These sins do not need to rule our lives, they don't need to harass us, they don't need to upset our community. We are to lay them aside, put them off. Well, then you might ask, how can we conquer these sins? 
Peter doesn't leave us to wonder. He then says, this this is the situation. You must be in community. It's necessary. There are difficulties in your community. So what you need is the Word of God. He says, you need to put off all these sins, and then, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. You see, it all begins right here. It's difficult to see in English... There are two verbs here, put off and long for. The main verb is actually long for. You see, Peter's saying the first thing that you want to do is to desire the Bible. I want you to have the Bible be the believer's desire. And because the Bible is your desire, you will want to put off these sins. We have to begin with the Bible. You see, putting off sins flows out of a desire to know God and His Word. It's what James says in chapter 1, verse 21. He says that putting off sins helps us to know God's Word, to have it implanted in our hearts, engrafted. And so we put off sins to help us know God's Word. It begins with that desire, but also it doesn't end at that beginning because we can't ever have enough of God's Word. We are to long for God's word like the familiar psalm, as the deer pants after streams of water, so my soul longs after you. Same word, same concept. You see, we are to desire God's word like an animal dying of thirst next to a stream. It's the strongest desire that we can have. It affects everything else in our lives. Our desire to know others, our desire to be in relationships, our desire to learn, our desire to live lives that are godly. All of it flows from God's Word. It's a primary desire. It's not secondary. See, Peter gives us a good word picture here. I've said to you before, Peter's a good preacher. He gives good illustrations. He says, like newborn infants... Desire this milk. Ladies or dads, how many of you wondered whether the baby was hungry the first week or two that you brought the baby home from the hospital? Babies have a way of telling you, don't they? Of letting you know. It's basically the only thing they can do is scream at the top of their lungs when they want to eat. You see... Others should see us and see, like newborn infants, that we cannot live without the Word of God. We can't have enough of it. We can't live without it. It is our strongest desire. But it's more than our strongest desire. It is our strength as well. The Word of God is the believer's strength. It's the very substance of life. Newborn infants, not children... Not adults, not even babies, newborns. Like a newborn, we are to desire the Word. Now, there's a Bible interpretation alert here in this text. Sometimes when we look at this, we see babies, infants, babes, and we think, oh, that means baby Christians, that means new Christians. So that means new Christians are supposed to desire the Word because it's new to them. Or we look and we see when people first come to faith in Jesus Christ, how they are fired up about the Word of God. But then afterwards, you know, things get busy. There are committee meetings, there are things going on, there's work, and we sort of fade off. No. 
Peter's not saying baby Christians. He's saying like babies desire. If you have been a Christian, if you have known the Lord Jesus Christ for 60 years, you are to desire the word of God like this. Like a newborn infant. One who cannot live without the word of God. Because this word of God is sufficient for us. It is the pure spiritual milk. What do infants need besides milk? When was the last time you fed an infant a hamburger? Orange juice. Corn on the cob. No. All an infant needs, all the nutrition to be healthy and grow is milk. So it is for the Christian with the Word of God. We don't need self-help books. We don't need 15-step programs. We need the Word of God. That is what strengthens us. That is what brings us to spiritual maturity and growth. And it is the pure milk of God. It is uncontaminated. There's a saying that one of the most dangerous things that you can ever find is poison in the milk bottle. Right? Because you go and you get the milk bottle, and what do you expect? Milk. Right? Some of you may know, I don't know if they do this anymore, do they still have on stickers, and they still have Mr. Yuck? Anybody here remember Mr. Yuck? Right? You're supposed to put him on all of the stuff that kids shouldn't drink. Big, green, scowling face, skull and crossbones kind of a thing. Poison. Don't touch. You put that on drain cleaner... Big Mr. Yuck, kids see it, they walk away. You pour drain cleaner in the milk bottle, kids don't know it, and they can get hurt. It's the same way with spiritual things. We need to be very careful about how we study the Word of God and who we trust, and we are doing it in a spirit of prayer, relying upon the Holy Spirit. We want the pure milk of God, not the contaminated doctrine of others. You see, this is how Satan tempts us. We think that Satan comes up to us and in our dreams whispers to us, your God is stupid. You shouldn't believe anything he says. Everything he does is a lie. When in reality, when Satan comes right up to the point and he tempts, he doesn't deny the word of God outright, does he? He says, now did God really say that, Eve? Are you sure you didn't miss some of the picture? You sure it's not just a little bit this way? Satan comes to our Lord and he tempts him with what? Scripture. Twists it. Gives half the story. But that's the way in which Satan tempts us. That's how Satan wants to attack our families. That's how Satan wants to attack our church, our community. By stirring up these sins and moving us away from the word of God. You see... This is what brings growth to us. Peter says, you need to desire this milk that that by it you may grow up to salvation. You see, I need to hear this. You need to hear this. The American church needs to hear this. Do you want better marriages? Do you want better families? Do you want better relationships with others? I hope you do. I do. Then what Peter says is, if you want that, you must be in the Word. That's where you grow, 
is in the Word. You don't need anything else. Don't abandon the Word for the next latest, greatest fad. It's the Word of God that brings growth. If by God's grace our church grows in depth and in numbers, it will be because of the Word of God. Not because of something else that I devise or John thinks up or the elders fashion. We are called to plan and work and live, but subsidiary to the Word of God. That's where we grow. It's like this analogy here with food and with children. Have you ever heard a parent say, you know, Johnny really needs to grow. I'm concerned that he builds strong bones and muscles. So I've got him on a very strict diet. Ten candy bars a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Huh? Sure. What are you, nuts? You want Johnny to grow, you've got to give him food. You've got to give him solid food. You see, we recognize that easily as a silly example, but we're willing to do that at times. I'm willing to do that at times with the Word of God, to close my Bible and to devise a solution that I think will cause me to grow. Are you tempted by that? Peter says, put that aside. Put it aside with the sins and focus upon the Word of God. This is the power of God. Well, where do we get this power? Where does this power come from? It comes from God Himself, doesn't it? From the author of the very Word. It shows us the necessity of God. It's not just that the Word is necessary. We must also have the God of the Word. Peter goes on in verse 3. He says, you're going to desire this word of God in verse 2, and the way you're going to desire it is, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Do you see how he does that? He links a desire for the word with an already taste of God. We desire the word more because we cannot get enough of God. This, if indeed, is kind of halfway between a question and an assertion. It's basically Peter saying, well, if you know God, and you do, because you're elect, because you're born again, because you have love for the brothers, (coughs) if you know God, then you must desire the Word. Because God is the fountain of the Word. The Word comes from God. You see, he says, you have tasted the Lord, and you've tasted that he is good. God is the fountain of our longing for the word. We see that God is good, and we want more of God. Another just illustration, example of this. Um, I spent a couple of years in a place called Chula, Mississippi, preaching. And I would preach in the morning, and then preach in the evening, and in between because it was about an hour away, I would stay at a family's home for lunch. And these were good farming community homes with fresh vegetables and big roasts and great gravy and everything you can imagine. I don't mean to make your mouth water. But every day I would have lunch and then I would come back to the church and uh, rest and maybe put the finishing touches on the evening sermon. And about a half an hour that day I would call and talk to Deb and I would say, well, I was at... Jim and Louise's for lunch, or I was over at, the, at Crawford's house for lunch. And she would say, well, what did you have? And I'd describe it, and she would say to me, well, how much did you have? Well, you can see. 
I have a longing for food. And I would sheepishly say, well, I, I had seconds. And she'd say, why? You don't need seconds. Well, that's true. Look at me. I'm not wasting away. And I would say the same thing. I would say, what well, was so good? I didn't need it. I was actually starting to get full, but I couldn't push away from the table. It was so good. Is God that way to you? Is God so good that you can't push away from the table? You've just got to have more of God. Maybe it's not food. Maybe for you kids, it's like your favorite game or computer game. And mom says, five minutes. Okay, mom. One minute. Okay, mom. All right, you're done. I just got to finish this little bit here. Come on, I just got to finish this level, right? Can't be done with it. Is God that way for you, kids? Wait a minute, mom. I'll be there in one second. Just finishing this chapter in my Bible. Wouldn't it be great if we were a community marked by that? It doesn't mean we can't play computer games. But wouldn't it be great? We wouldn't have to beat a drum or plant a flag if people saw our kids and our kids said, wait a minute, Mom, I'm over here praying with Tommy. I'll finish in a minute and I'll be back. It's that kind of a community that would turn Katie and Houston upside down. How do I know that? It did it in Galatia. It did it in Ephesus. It did it in Rome. It did it in Spain. This is what the gospel does. This is how we affect a community. But God is not just the fountain of the word. He's also the fountain of our good. What a Lord we serve. Because we've tasted that the Lord is good. And not just good in the abstract. But good to us. Good for us. We've been talking about this sense of community. We've been talking about laying off sins so that we have a better community, right? Who made the community? God. Have you ever been encouraged by someone when you're down? You come to church a little down and someone encourages you? That's God's gift to you. Have you ever needed help in difficulty and someone was there? That's God's gift to you. God sees our shortcomings. I got a big one. And God has given me Daryl and Duke. I don't ever have to fix anything again in my life. Right? You don't ever have to read a closing statement on a real estate deal. I can do that. God's given us each other to strengthen us because God is good to us. Not just in the abstract. This is the kind of God that we desire and want to be a part of. And want to be a part of His community. And this community sees growth not just in the pieces parts, but in the whole, doesn't it? God is good to us that our entire community grows. You see, do we desire more community? I come back to my original question. Do you want a better community here at Christ Church? then get more of God. If you get more of God, we will have a better community. This will cause us to have right relationships. You know, it's like the Bible says, they will know you are Christians by the breadth of your programs. No, wait, wait. By the square footage of your building. No, wait. By the number of missionaries you send out. 
by the number of people you witness to. Is that what the Bible says? No. It says, they will know you are Christians by your love. You see, it's love that makes us send more missionaries. It's love that makes us do evangelism. It's love that makes us want to have programs that help others. It's love that makes us want to have space so we can do as much as we can in the community. Love triggers all of these things. And love happens in community, and community happens when we come face to face with God in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what God has for Christ Church. Are you excited about that? I hope so. Because this is the work that the Lord is doing in my life, in your life, in our children's lives, and in the lives of people we haven't met yet who are going to come to us. God's goodness brings about our good. So this week, when you struggle, when you're not sure how to repair that small little rift, listen to Peter. Go to the Lord. Go to his word and understand that you can't let the rift stay. You've got to be a healer. You've got to be a forgiver. Because we're called to live with one another. I've said this to you before. Look around to your right and your left. Get used to these people. You're going to be spending eternity with them. May as well learn to love them now. What a blessing that Peter is in our community and can give us this word to bless us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Apostle Peter. Oh, Lord, you are so good to us. We have tasted, Lord, that you are good, and we cannot get enough of you. We pray that you would give us many venues to know how good you are and what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.